I thought, uh, or at least in my own thinking, that uh, I held a high place of esteem and appreciation here at the church. But after listening to that this morning, I, I, I realize I'm just, just another pretty face. But uh, this morning we're going to be sharing some time with you and uh, uh, give you some, some guidance on living and, and so on. And also for the pastor, we're going to be modeling uh, ideal and good preaching. <laughs> and uh, share in such a way that... Uh, be a help to all of us. But today is an important day, uh, May the 5th. Well, May the 5th, 1494, on Christopher Columbus' second voyage, he discovered uh, part of the New World, Jamaica. On May the 5th, 1821, Napoleon Bonaparte died in exile on St. Helens Island in the South Atlantic. On May the 5th, 1865, the 13th Amendment was ratified by the states and slavery was outlawed in this nation. On May the 5th, 2013, Russell Willis preached at Pitts Baptist Church. <laughs> I'll Google that. And it's got to be right. <laughs> but we share today in the joyous experience of sharing ministry. And uh, of all the things that we do, we do mutually with each other, and, and in particular those of us on staff, the ministerial staff of this church and others, we carry a load that many of you do not know and uh, do not understand, but we understand each other. And in our sharing of those responsibilities and our concerns, there is a unique kind of love and appreciation that we share. And I bring that to you in honesty this morning, uh, in spite of what the pastor said. <laughs> this has been our joy. We just completed seven years with you in the middle of April. Do you realize that? And the uh, pastor said, now you've got a lot of seniors there, about 170 altogether enrolled, and uh, some of them are not easy to get along with. I said, I know that. I know they're not all of them easy to get along with, but I'm just going to outlive them. <laughs> and uh, so we're doing that. I'm uh, uh, an area, in case you want to know, uh, up in the 80s. But we share together today. If you have your Bibles with you, and we invite you to turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter. And we're going to read some of that together today. Just stand together, shall we? Beginning with the first verse of the fifth chapter. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he had set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the peaceful and merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are they pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Let us pray. We, Father, we ask now that you will bless this time of proclamation, and that in so doing, hearts shall be drawn to you and lives in some way changed as you come into those lives and alter and renovate their whole system of thinking. Help us as well to be uh, deeply in prayer that what you want to do will happen, not what I have planned. And please, Lord, don't just do what I have planned, but do what you plan and make that the role of your greatness and majesty among us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is usually what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It comes in Matthew. The Matthean uh, biography gives it this way that I've just read, and it also comes in that Lucan biology and uh, that biographical material that, uh, that Luke has. Uh, and it, it, section, it sections off part of what we know as kingdom citizenship, what we are involved in as Christians, uh, in which there has been some alteration and a continuing alteration and modification of our lives in light of his indwelling in the believer. And this is that subtle thing about the scripture that I have just read that it isn't something that just applies once you walk the aisle and shake the preacher's hand, but instead it is an indwelling of the Spirit of God coming into the person so that they take up the role of kingdom citizenship. This is not a moral code just to elevate the masses. Jesus is not interested in doing that. that though two-thirds of all that he says has to do with interpersonal relationships and how we get along with each other and about a third of it has to deal with the theological of second coming and redemption and so on. But it is not uh, an attempt on Jesus' part to uh, uh, proclaim a new moral code for society in general so they can do away with the law but instead it is uh, an invitation uh, for something real to happen in their lives. The scene, of course, is, is well known. Uh, Jesus is speaking and teaching, teaching the disciples and others, and multitudes follow him everywhere he goes. And then he moves from where he was doing all of that and uh, moves quickly from the fourth chapter into the fifth. We have the, uh, the chronicling of it. And he moves to a place on the mount in Matthew and in Luke to a plain. It doesn't make that much difference about that. And he, he begins to teach them. And in so doing, he brings first and foremost the concept of what it means 
when you follow him. Uh, we know, of course, that there were those that follow him gladly. Later on, when the reality of his message began to sink in, they began to drift away from him. And on one occasion, he even says to his disciples, will you also go away? A plaintive kind of inquiry, it seems to me, that the master does. And will you also go away? So it wasn't always popular what he did. And it might say this to you, that you understand that the proclamation of the reality of Christ Jesus and the renovating kind of experience that is required for kingdom and citizenship is not always popular. Be careful of those that have big crowds who come to hear them because they probably, in many, many cases, may not be even bringing the truth. That's important for us to know. But in this case, in, in the Lucan uh, biographical material and in, in, in Matthew, we have the expose of what Jesus is bringing to them in light of the alteration that's made possible. In, in John 1 and 12, there is, of course, that, that entreaty part that, uh, where it says, To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to as many as believe on his name. Go back there to the word received, to as many as received him. Now that means commitment, not just believing that Jesus is the Son of God. The devil does that, the Scripture tells us. He believes that he is. So it's not just a, a head acknowledgement, a mental kind of assent, but rather it is an invitation for the indwelling of the Spirit of the Lord so that he dwells inside. And that's what's being proclamated here. That is the, the truth of the gospel then comes here first and for us to understand what God is about. The scripture tells us that, uh, that uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And this is part of that process. So he comes to proclaim to those who come around him what it means to have kingdom citizenship. And it's interesting that he isn't talking just to his disciples here, evidently because uh, as he begins to speak, he, as usually he speaks in second person, in this case, he speaks in third person plural. And that includes the multitudes. And in Luke especially, the multitudes come and participate almost uh, in that, uh, that narrative. So he is talking to everybody. It is not just those special 12. The timing is different from Luke to Matthew. And in Matthew, he has already selected the 12. And, and uh, so there is that kind of changing going on here. But it's important to understand what happens here when Jesus talks about this. He talks to all of them. So it's inclusive. It, it doesn't exclude anybody. So it, it means for today and in, in our living and what we're seeing and what we're doing, it means that this applies to where we are, not just these particular people or to those of us who wear the cloth. Remember that. The requirements of the Christian experience and Christian living do not fall just on those of, of us who are called preachers, to use a term, but upon all of us. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, the, the Jews had struggled, of course, with, uh, with the, their attempt to live well according to the law. They had followed it with, with a good deal of carefulness, and, and in spite of their best attempts and all they could do, they failed with that. You know, they came out of the sojourn in Egypt, 
and uh, began to um, put together those kind of laws that they were going to live by, and, and we have that, and, and then finally it is institutionalized during the time of the uh, captivity, uh, and that return, when they return back into the land, they have fairly well put everything down with all the jots and tittles that go with it, has 613 laws altogether that uh, they had to be obedient on. And Paul, of course, laments that in the seventh chapter of Romans where he talks about, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall separate me from the body of this death? The impossibility of living as he, he wanted to. He said he tried his best. That which he wanted to do, he could not do. And that which he did not want to do, he did. All of us have been there. If you walked at all, at all in the human experience, you know how impossible it is to be good. People want to be good. I've talked with so many who said, well, Pastor, I, I want to do the right thing. I want to be good. And I try to tell them that there aren't any like that. Scripture tells us that there aren't any righteous at all. But they had struggled with it, and it's, they finally got it down into some, some readable kind of thing, a collection of the, uh, of the oral tradition in, in, the, in the Midrash, which has two divisions in it, and the Mishnah, which has that little section of compiling all the, uh, the, the laws together. They couldn't live by it. They tried. They couldn't go by it and, and live as they wished to live. And because of that, they found the difficulty to be more than they could handle. And now Jesus comes. All of the story is there. But he was a disappointment to them, you see, because they asked him repeatedly the question, have you come to restore the grandeur of the Davidic kingdom? Is this what you are going to do as the Messiah among us? For the Messianic hope was not so much eternal salvation. It was the rise again of the glory and the grandeur of Davidic nationalism. And Jesus, Jesus said, no, no, not that. But they wanted to do right. So Jesus brings to those who have accepted him, those who follow him, those who have received him, to as many as received him, committed themselves to him. If you jump over, and I don't mean to, to do that so much there, but if you move to, to Revelation, the third chapter and the 20th verse, you will have it there where there was the knocking on the door and the scripture tells us, and this is perhaps almost all scholarship says a direct quote of Jesus and his teaching. He said, if any man will open the door, I will come in. Come in. Dwell with him. Eat with him. Live with him. That's that indwelling kind of thing. And that alone makes the possibility for kingdom citizenship to be a reality. He speaks to the multitude in the fourth chapter and moves to the fifth with the important kind of proclamations of what we call the Beatitudes. This is not a new moral law, as I said. It's not one trying to do his best. It is instead this kind of category. We are not of those, we are not they, 
we are different because he dwells inside. Inside. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that we can just regulate our lives and, and do what we wish to do and all will come out well, but it doesn't work that way at all. And we conservative Christians, uh, we're very good on, on Bible knowledge. We know a great deal about it. We can quote a great deal of it. We uh, learned it early in Sunday school, uh, all of the books of the Bible, and we can find those easily, and we committed ourselves to, uh, to memorize uh, our scripture verse every Sunday morning as we went to Sunday school, and, and we do a whole lot of that. And in light of that, we feel like pretty, pretty secure about everything because, as people have told me, I, I know the Bible. And uh, we do, we know it. But we practice it rather faintly, it seems to me. It seems to me we do. I've been in this, this county almost 35 years now, and uh, I like it very much, incidentally. And I've seen uh, and been a part and participated in the various activities that have gone on culturally and socially in this, in this county as well, and the elections we had on, on liquor by the drink and all of that sort of thing. Well, you know, of course, that uh, we Baptists, as they say, and uh, I think maybe they're right because that could not have passed uh, seemed like to me, but uh, without it. But uh, Baptists, they say, uh, uh, they, uh, they vote dry, but they drink wet. <laughs> they drink wet. Well, I, 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 and I'm, I've been a pastor of a large First Baptist church, you know. We were the society church of the whole county, you know. If you were most of anybody, you went, that's where you went, uh, well, you could have gone to First Methodist or First Presbyterian, but oh, First Baptist, their steeple was 18 inches taller than any of the others, you know. <laughs> and we had one of those big pipe organs with a whole bunch of ranks, 50, 60 ranks in there, and, and uh, it, uh, you know, two or three keyboards up there, and, and uh, we did all of those kind of things. And, and of course, we had weddings. Society has weddings, you know. We had those weddings, and, and I uh, participated in those. And then, of course, uh, they had the wedding receptions. Well, the wedding receptions, the pastor, you need to watch this a little bit because this is good instruction for you. Uh, You've got to watch the reception location. If it's, a, if it's in a church fellowship hall, you're safe. <laughs> if it's at the country club, be careful. Be careful. Well, that happened to me on one occasion. We had had a wedding, and I'd participated and had done the ceremony, and, and the reception was at the country club. Well, the church, bless their heart, provided me membership in the country club. Yeah, they did. Because their preachers in the past played golf. I didn't do that, but they still paid for the country club fees, but I was a member. Anyway, we went to the country club, for the reception, and uh, they, as always do, you know, in order to be proper with us Baptists, they had two lines. You know where you go through and get that cup? Well, I, I got mine, went through one of the lines, got mine, and uh, began to walk around with that and posture with it. You don't get that to drink, you get it to posture, you walk around with it, you know. And I was doing that and got it up close to my nose, and it had, it smelled like Listerine. 
It had a strange odor to it that I wasn't used to. It wasn't punch. Or maybe it was some sort of punch. I don't know. But it didn't smell like anything I was used to, and I knew I had gotten in the wrong line. <laughs> well, my chairman of deacons, Bill Brackett, bless his heart, saw the dilemma, and uh, he went back and got the right thing, and he came up to me with it and said, here, pastor, you take this. And I took it and gave him mine. I've often wondered what Bill did with that one. <laughs> but anyway, these kinds of things happen. So uh, we, we talk a, a good story, uh, but our application of it is not always there. And we practice it rather faintly. But Jesus here was talking in the third person, and he begins to talk to them about some important things. There were eight of them all together in Matthew. There were four of them listed in Luke. And he begins to speak to them about them. Number one is that one in the third verse. And it says to be, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now the Greek word for poor there uh, has a connotation of poverty. I'm aware of that. But Matthew gives also the modifier in spirit, poor in spirit. And it says that is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there is a subjective complement uh, is there, and that uh, does not refer to poor. It refers to spirit, the attitude one has, knowing who he is and where he is and, and that sort of thing and how they fit in. That poorness doesn't mean rags that one has to wear, but it means instead, well, rags of the heart maybe, but it is a, an attitude of, of openness and realizing your place in society and not all the pomp and circumstances that goes with what we think we would like folks to think about us. The image that we're so concerned about. I remember during the Depression days and not didn't have a whole lot to eat, I guess. I didn't know at our house we seemed to eat all right. But uh, I remember that if I was being invited after church to go home with someone and other young boys our age and go to their house after church because we'd come back that night, and mother would always say to me, be sure that you leave something on your plate when you eat. Don't you clean your plate up like you haven't had anything to eat in a week. You leave a little on there. Well, I always wanted to leave a little bit, but not very much. <laughs> but we are interested in image, you see. But this talks about the poor in spirit. Notice that subjective compliment that's put in there that puts an equal sign in there. It is a spirit that's there, the attitude one has. I remember I was a pastor in Mississippi back in the days before uh, the desegregation uh, had begun in the early 50s. And I, there was a knock at the door, and I went there, and when I opened the door, uh, there was a man standing down on the grass. He had knocked on the door and then backed off of the front porch and steps and stood down there, a black man. And he had his hat in his hand, and he was asking me if we had any work he could do around the parsonage and the church building. Because he said, 
I want to have enough to go buy food for my family. Here was a man holding his hat in his hand. I hope I never forget the look in that man's eyes. It's a shame that we do that to people. A shame that we do it. But it is that spirit of knowing who one is without all of the tapestry and all of that hangs with us that we think is so very important. You see, it's humility that is involved here. And we need to understand that. There's a lot of things that go on here in that, in that area of peacefulness. means that there's a sense of generosity and a, a sense of giving so that we are willing to share what God has blessed us with, even though there not, might not be much. Still, where there's a spirit of openness and not keeping everything to ourselves. That's very important that we don't do that. We understand that there is, there is that openness of spirit and, and the poorness that it's talking about in spirit means that what we have can also be yours. Can also be yours. A charity. Let me talk about my boys for a moment. We have three of them. All of them professionals make more money than I'll ever make and all ever made in all my life put together. And uh, anyway, we're going to take a trip this summer. The pastor uh, talked all about that in such good terms. And uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, he uh, uh, we're going to take another trip this summer. And we were gone. We weren't didn't take one last year, incidentally. So we're going to take some time this year. And we're going to go west and take that motor home. Uh, incidentally, the boys bought the motor home for us. We appreciate that. Uh, a nice little motor home, not a huge one, but you know. And it, uh, it doesn't get very good mileage. It, uh, I tell folks it gets uh, about 14 miles a gallon, uh, but I have to work on that a little bit because that 14, that, that six, six in town and eight on the road. And so... <laughs> Uh, at the price of gas today, it takes just about 50 cents a mile to run that thing. We're going to California and back. It's about 6,000 miles out there and back. Now, you don't have to be the whiz kid to figure out how much that's going to take $3,000 just for fuel. Well, the boys are going to pick up that as well. And they're going to, uh, this is just generous is what I'm talking about. And uh, they're going to pick that up as well. All the fees that we have for our camping spots at night and and the meals that we take out, and we're going to go to good restaurants, incidentally. And they're going to, they're going to take care of all of that. And it's a, just the generosity. And uh, it's, it's just wonderful. The, the only thing is, the boys don't know about that. I'm taking it out of their inheritance. <laughs> How am I doing? <laughs> generosity is a part of that. And so you see, it, it involves more than just, just walking the aisle and taking the preacher's hand and saying, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And sign me up. I'll join the choir. I'll, I'll do all those kind of things. No, this is that indwelling of the Spirit of God that comes inside for as many as received him. John 1 and 12. Recipients of the presence of God inside. And that is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. This is not a new moral code for everybody. This is kingdom citizenship. 
meek. That's number three. I think it's verse number five, if I'm not mistaken. And meekness. It means in the Greek, it talks about that. It has to do with the breaking of a horse to saddle or to reins. You don't break the horse's will. You don't break the horse's concept of, of doing the right thing. It's just obedience, you see. It's discipline. That meekness, being willing to be guided and directed by the Spirit of God. And it might apply also socially that, you know, there is a, a, a constant in the world around us. There's always somebody over us, in charge of us. Uh, on the farm with the chickens that we had, we used to call it the pecking order, you know. The bigger the hens, they picked on the smaller ones on down the road, and that, kind of that's the way it was. And there's always someone over us, always. Uh, at our house, uh, that's not a problem. We, I, I learned a long time ago who's in charge there. You know, you, you deal with that in, in reality. And uh, Dot and I have a good relationship, but uh, um, uh, yesterday she, she missed me real badly. Uh, by about two feet. <laughs> but you got to know who's in charge and understand that. That's what, that's what Jesus is trying to teach the, the crowd that day and the disciples that you submit yourself to the leadership of the Spirit of God when he comes in and indwells. That's the reality of it the indwelling of that spirit so that we are not just those who have made a public kind of display, but in the quietness of our own personal sanctuary, we come to grips with who we are and ask forgiveness that we may be the people of God. We could go through the rest of these, but we don't have time for that. And uh, <laughs> we want to find Christ in the center of all of this. Oh, it's so important that we do that, that we don't bypass the reality of, of Christ at the, at the center of all. We, we can talk about the sociological, and I can do that well because my early training and my degrees are in sociology. I can deal with that. But that's not what really is at the center of all of this. The center of it, you see, if, there, if you're going to be a, a part of the kingdom and have a kingdom citizenship, you have to have the presence of the king. That's what it all is about. That's what it really is all about. That he comes to participate with us in living and that we're not just making some sort of show of it. But you see, as he comes into our hearts and lives, and there comes to us the experience of that renovating, changing, molding, and gripping presence of God, we're no more like we were, not yesterday or the day before, because what we once were, we are no more. It is a central thought of all of the Old Testament that God is in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And at that very point, at that 
understanding of that brings us to what is really at the center of all, must be at the center of all preaching. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, it tells us that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So all that we see in the Old Testament is a part, a prelude of that, of what's going to happen, and then he comes, and the New Testament chronicles those events. So finally we come to the garden experience, and Jesus across the little brook Kedron, the Last Supper, the next day's march, with a heavy burden to Golgotha. That's what it's all about. At the very center of that is our inviting him to come in, opening that door so that he comes in and dwells within us. And we don't struggle anymore to be good. We simply are obedient to him. And in that way, we are right with him. Because his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Well, we may search for ways to be lofty in our attitudes, but you can't succeed at that any more than the Jews could in their day. They studied and tried to follow the Midrash and the Mishnah, but they couldn't come down to, to the reality of doing it right. Or we can look for a Messiah that will take away all our problems for us and, and bring that kind of, of presence that we would all like, you know, which they all sought, the greatness of our country and nationalism to raise again. Or we can follow the flag of the cross. It took 300 years, almost 300 years, till finally, above the city on seven hills, the banner of the cross was raised, and it was raised everywhere that the Roman eagle had flown because it was triumphant. It is finished, he said. It is finished. That part. But not yours and mine until we open the door to the Christ who died for us. Listen now to a reading of that I, I'll do in one solitary life. Listen prayerfully and pray for the moving of God's Spirit in your heart and others as I read. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher he never wrote a book. He never held office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. And he never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness.
He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him and his friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves and while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. He was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, have not affected the life of men on this earth as much as that one solitary life.